Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Denise Michaud, Chair of the Grownups Forum, and our program is called I Hear You, Talking and Listening to People with Alzheimer's. We have two distinguished guests with us today, Allison Kuhn and Dr. Jane Mahakian. Dr. Jane is a gerontologist who has specialized over 30 years for managing care for people with forgetfulness, memory issues, and primarily Alzheimer's. People from all over the country seek out her guidance and her help. In 2017, she founded the Alzheimer's Care Armenia, which is a nonprofit dedicated to developing programs and care for Alzheimer's patients in Armenia. So it's truly a global issue. Alison Kuhn is a well-established freelance writer, editor, and speaker. She works closely with designers, publishers, and has many corporate clients. She served as senior editor for Heart to Heart Global Cardiac Care and works with the Corette Foundation here in San Francisco on stories profiling the accomplishments of their grantees. On a special note, she has contributed text to two, um, two exhibitions at the Smithsonian National Postal Museum. So welcome, Dr. Jane and Allison. Um, I want to first tell you that both of my grandmothers had dementia. One had needed care for 10 years and one needed care for six years. And unfortunately, this is not an unusual situation. Uh, the thing is that when somebody has dementia, it does not just affect the person with dementia. It affects the entire family. And when I read this book, I thought this should be required reading for any family member who is going through this kind of situation. So can you tell me or tell us how uh, or what brought you guys together and uh, why did you decide to collaborate on this book? So I had the great good luck to be introduced to Dr. Jane by my mom's primary care physician. I had called him up to say that I was increasingly uncomfortable leaving my mother alone in the house. And I was trying to figure out what to do. And he said to me, Allison, do you have someone to talk to? And I said, you, I'm talking to you. And he said, no, 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 I'm not your person. He suggested Dr. Jane. I got in touch and truly from the first conversation, it was as if this gigantic weight had slid off me. That said, moving my mother from her home to a memory care community was a big undertaking. I truly thought that my mother would wind up hating me for depriving her of the retirement that she had envisioned in her own home. Happily, that didn't happen. And I credit Dr. Jane and my unexpected aptitude for being comfortable telling what we refer to as the kind, kind of lie. And the basis for our writing this book was my impassioned, lengthy emails and phone calls to Dr. Jane over a period of a couple of years. Because even though my mom was in a great place, there are inevitably dramas and challenges, and Dr. Jane was there for me truly every single step. Well, Allison, I have, I, I have to say that, you know, your emails really 
formed a a lot of the basis of our book, right? You know, the vignettes and the collaboration. It just seemed like a natural fit. It Uh, was was a great fit, although as Dr. Jane and I started working, I realized that even though my mother would never be aware of our book, I couldn't do it while she was alive. And so my mother passed away in 2012. And a couple of years later, Dr. Jane and I started working. Mm-hmm. So the, the title of your book is so simple, three simple words, I hear you, um, but it is really a powerful message. How did you come up with that, that title? You know, Denise, it, you're absolutely right. You know, I hear you is a very powerful, powerful message. You know, it's really all about, you know, the person really doesn't feel heard. Mm-hmm. The person that has a a dementia, forgetfulness, an Alzheimer's type dementia or other type of dementias doesn't feel heard. Mm -hmm. And really what we saw out there is really many times, you know, there, there's no sense of how to connect with a person and really the importance of being able to feel heard. So I hear you just, it just came, you know, it's just kind of almost like an epiphany of how this occurred. Um, but really it's, it's, it's a book that's full of practical points and it's a book that really provides a sense of security for that person that is caring for someone with, with a memory impairment. Um, and it's really all about, you know, being, being able to have that person feel that they're heard. So it's not, that person's not defined by the disease, that person's self is there and it's, we're where, you know, the book is a really a guide to teach people, really, how do you reach that person? Allison, do you want to say anything? Yeah, I just wanted to say, of course, there's two sides to communicating. There's talking, and there's listening. Mm -hmm. And there's a temptation to talk around somebody with dementia. But in fact, the person still has feelings. And even if the person is less verbal than he or she used to be that doesn't mean that their feelings are are less acute and i would say on the contrary perhaps they're more acute just the way there's that theory that people who are blind develop heightened sensitivity in other senses i i have this sense that that could also be true for dementia my mother was a keen observer a keen listener even on days when she didn't feel like talking you know, I, I want to tell you that when I read this book, I was thinking of my interactions with my grandmothers, which was many, many years ago. And um, but then I also thought you were also listening to me or you were hearing me as a caregiver. So I kind of saw that as both, you know, of how to talk and listen to the, the person with dementia. But you were also acknowledging me as a caregiver, you know, who has all these feelings, too. So, and I, I, I want to pre- tell you, I appreciate that so much. Absolutely. You know, I think that the logistics of caring for someone with dementia mm-hmm. are complex. Mm-hmm. And there is an understandable tendency to let communication slide because you have to focus on so many other things. And so I think that for caregivers, it can be so isolating even if you aren't the primary caregiver. And um, hopefully the book will help people because we make the point more than once, more than twice, 
that doing this alone is not in your best interest or the interest of someone with dementia. It really does take a team of sorts. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, 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 it is a journey that you really can't do alone. And so you need to, that person needs to have a team. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so important to gather as much information as you can and do your research and really reach out to people for support because it's something, whether it's a support group or, or other types of, of groups and support systems that you need to reach out to. It's something you really can't go by, do alone by yourself. And there's a lot of books out there on Alzheimer's, on dementia, and many are huge books or textbooks on um, things that happen in aging and all that. So what, um, what sets your book apart? What makes your book different than these other books that are out there? So many books. When we started this book, we, I won't say we bounced around, but we wondered how broad we could go. And we decided to just focus on communicating, which deserves to be a topic on its own. I'm holding the book up just so you can see. It's not a huge book, okay? It's a small book because it focuses just on this main aspect of caring for somebody with dementia. There are lots of books out there. There are personal accounts. There are caregiver support guides, and there are academic books. Most of them give what I'm going to call scant attention to the idea of communicating, which is it's so central to taking care of somebody. And it's actually possible by communicating to make someone with dementia feel that he or she has nothing wrong with him or herself and that they can still have a rich life. And so if you get sidetracked by all the other things, really for the person with dementia, it doesn't much matter what's going on in his or her brain. What matters is what's going on in his or her heart And you can shape that. You know, I think it's also important too. you know, this book really instills a lot of hope for people and not only hope uh, and skill set that you are communicating correctly with that person that has a memory impairment, but also hope for that person and that, and that truly that they, that they can lead productive lives they can lead a purposeful life and it's all about creating that in what we which is discussed in the book you know i think many times people feel that a person with a cognitive impairment is going to is not going to be productive they're not a productive member of society and actually that is absolutely not true so it's all about looking at what that person can do not so much what they can't do can't do and really focusing on those things in looking at other types of literature and books available, there really was very little uh, uh, that really provides a guide for people to how to communicate. Mm-hmm. So in your book, you have 11 vignettes, which are such little stories that are so relatable. And um, can you give us a couple of examples of those vignettes that may be your favorite? You know, I'd love to. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about um, Mary and her blankety-blank parents. Um, Mary uh, was a 82, 83-year-old um, woman living in a memory care community. 
And as many of you know, uh, when a person uh, has uh, moderate stage um, Alzheimer's disease, for example, that person may start what we call sundowning. So every day around 4 or 4.30, she would start knocking on the doors of the memory care unit. And the staff really had no idea what to do. How do you, how do you really, um, you know, diffuse and really redirect some of that agitation? She believed that her parents were coming to pick her up. So the staff decided that um, what they're going to do is they're going to have uh, one of the nurses telephoned Mary and said that, her, that she had a phone call and that her parents were calling her. Mary still believed that her parents were alive. The nurse on the other end of the phone spoke to Mary and basically said, you know, your parents are, are here. This is the Sheridan Hotel calling and your parents are running late and they'll be there tomorrow to pick you up. So Mary was her, her delusion, her, you know, her distorted thought that her parents were alive was what we call validated. So instead of saying that your parents have passed away, her parents, you know, she believed and received the comfort that her parents were still here. And then they engaged her and distracted her with a job to do as such as setting, you know, the table for the, uh, herself and other residents. So it worked very, very nicely. It is something that um, therapeutic fibbing in the book, it's really our what it's really called is the kind, kind of lie. So that person and that uh, professional working in memory care communities have, have to be comfortable with, not, with kind of stretching the truth. Of course, depending upon where that person is and his or her progression of the disease. But it worked really nicely for Mary. And it serves as a way to make her feel like there's nothing wrong with her. So it is truly, you know, one of my favorite favorite, uh, you know, vignettes. I also kind of want to just add this uh, story, you know, several decades ago, probably three decades ago, I took my dear grandmother to Las Vegas. And this was maybe 30 some odd years ago. And um, my grandmother had forgetfulness. And when we got to Las Vegas, she immediately hit the slot machines. And she started dropping her money in and nothing happened, of course. And she had a wonderful time and it was time to eat. And so after lunch, she said, honey, I want to go and play that same machine. I Maybe I'll be lucky. We went out to the, to the casino after lunch and went to find this machine. And we were walking around for the longest time. And she came upon a machine that she thought was her machine. And actually, it was not the machine she had played. So I said, you know, I really, this is not your machine, Grandma. This is not, it's over there. It's two miles over. And she said, no, honey, it's not. So she began to play again and dropping dollar after dollar. And I'm like, oh, you know, I know, I know this is not the machine. And then all of a sudden she, she won. And the bells went off and it rang, you know, it was wonderful. And at that time, the money would drop down, you know, how it used to be in Las Vegas with the machines. And she won $2,500. <laughs> wow. So she turns to me, and this was kind of a, a pivotal moment in my career. This is a very long time ago. And turns to me and says, you know, honey, I know you're studying to, to work with older people that have memory loss, but I just want you to know something. I said, well, what is it, Grandma? And she said, I want you to know that people with memory loss are always right. 
So that became, you know, the premise really of my work and the philosophy and more of the focus of how I created my own company here in, in California to really make that person feel like there's nothing wrong with them. So I give a lot, most of the credit to my, to my grandmother. Um, I was going to ask you, do, and I find this too, or I see this, do you think caregivers, um, so they're used to dealing with someone in a certain way, so do you find that they feel like they need to correct that person so much and they need to be right? Mm-hmm. Caregiver, not the family member. You know, I, I really think it's, you know, many times we all struggle when we have a loved one that has an impair- a cognitive impairment mm-hmm. is that we want to remember, you know, we're, we're, you know, that person is there, but that person that the needs have changed and that person's, uh, what they want to remember, especially for professional caregivers, is they know your parent as they are right now. So your job is to keep, is to, is to bring their past forward. And by having, you know, by keeping the focus on the past, of course, positive memories, that really helps that person stay more focused and more centered. It can reduce agitation very, very, um, just amazingly, bringing, bringing the past forward. It could be things such as stories. It could be photos. You know, those type of memories will help reduce, do, reduce anxiety and agitation. And I think, you know, it, it's, it, everybody is different. And the disease affects everybody differently, too. I think that even just saying, oh, you're right. That's, that's enormously empowering to somebody. I mean, even someone with memory loss who doesn't remember that you have corrected him or her five times in the last five minutes, they do get a great feeling from, oh, you're right. And then you're going to move right on. That person's not keeping score. Um, but to keep contradicting someone, particularly if the person with dementia is telling you something that he or she believes is true, then for you to say, oh, no, actually, that's not true. That's, that's disconcerting. That is not comforting. The objective, I think, ultimately, is to make someone feel good. And I think so many of us are invested in being right, but there's a tendency to contradict, to try and bring the person with dementia back to our sense of reality. But you have no choice except to go where that person is. Well, absolutely. You know, it's, it's really stepping into their shoes, right? So you have to meet them where they are at, not where you are at. Mm-hmm. And, and moment to moment, hour to hour, day to day, that can change. Mm-hmm. So your loved one may be back in high school or they may be back dating. They may be at an earlier age. You have to figure out where they are in time. But you have to really step into their reality and not expect them to step into yours. You, you know, when we argue, you will lose. Guaranteed. So, so going against what they're, as long as they're staying safe, mm-hmm. as long as they're safe, and, and it's okay to allow them to win and to make them feel as though there's nothing wrong with them. And that they are correct. So somebody may say, um, you know, um, I didn't have breakfast this morning and when actually they did. So you serve them breakfast again because 
that's the right thing to do. Now, of course, you know, if they have a piece of cake and they want to have another piece of cake and another piece of cake, you got to use your, you know, the common sense, right? So that's where you would use a distraction with having that person perhaps help you and instill a sense that they are helping you solve something or do some sort of task to make them feel useful and purpose, purpose-driven is really what you want to do. And the memory loss can actually make this easier for you to pull off because if you get a no at two o'clock, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get a no at 2.05. You can just approach it from a different angle. And one of my favorite vignettes um, is about my mom's 80th birthday party, to which she had enthusiastically agreed when my sister and I proposed it. And then when the day came and I arrived to pick my mom up, there she was, looking lovely, in an armchair, having completely forgotten about the party. So I reminded her and she looked right at me and said, oh, I don't really feel like it. I'd rather just stay here. Well, (laughs) our entire extended family will be gathering at a restaurant to honor my mother and she would rather just stay there. So I don't say, oh, no, no, no. I say, oh, okay. I think I'll go next door and see Jack for a minute. Jack was her next door neighbor. We had invited him to the party. He um, had forgotten about the party and said he didn't really feel like it either. So I thought, great, here we have the emperor's new birthday party. Nobody there. Anyway, I say, oh, okay, Caroline will be sorry that you've missed it. How about if we bring you some of the fabulous dessert cookies? He says that would be great. So I go back next door. I have been gone a maximum of five minutes. And I say, Jack is feeling a little tired this afternoon. He's not going to come with us to the party, but I told him we had bring a, that we would bring him cookies. It's really lovely out right now, but it will be chilly by the time we leave the restaurant. Would you like to bring your corduroy coat for later? She says she thinks that would be a great idea. She gets up, she freshens her lipstick, and off we go. Mm-hmm. So again, I didn't... Um, contradict her. I didn't criticize her. I just tried jiggling the party switch from a different angle. So now we're on the way to the party. She's happy as a clam. We get there. And the big triumph of that afternoon was that after her brother had talked about her life and her accomplishments, after my sister had made a lovely tribute and toast, my mother whispers to me, I'd like to speak now. And I thought, okay, she's an accomplished former debater. If she wants to speak, she'll speak. So I asked if she would be comfortable standing up to make it easier for everybody to hear her. She said, of course. She stood up. She spoke completely fluidly and graciously for several minutes, thanking everyone for coming, talking about the importance of family, how happy it made her, to see the children of her generation of cousins, and so on. It was truly lovely. And when she was done, she just sat down. Everybody applauded. My sister and I tried not to cry. And I thought, you know, we have given her the best birthday possible. She has basked in the limelight, in the love of people who have known her their entire lives. And she rose 
to the occasion, shining so brightly herself. Beautiful. You, um, you mentioned 10 ways to empower someone with dementia. Can you give us a, and you said that somebody actually said this is, yes. these are good for people who don't have dementia. That's, that's, so. that's correct. So we, have, we have a chapter. It's the chapter after the um, vignette, Mary and her blankety blank parents is in that chapter. The Mary chapter is called Decoding the Languages of Dementia. Hmm. The next chapter is called Empowering the Person Within. And we have a list in there of 10 truly doable, they aren't, they aren't mystery techniques, 10 really easy ways to empower someone, to make somebody feel good and heard. And I got a text one morning at 7.06 from a friend of mine who was reading the book. And I'd like to just read that to you. It's just three sentences. I'm on page 90. I must say, if I ever need this information, this book will have empowered me. Your list of 10 things to empower Robin is a good list for many people, not just ones with a brain disease. And um, that's particularly thrilling to me. Um, she's not the only reader who has made that comment that the book isn't just about how to communicate with someone with dementia. A friend actually said to me the other day, this book is helping me understand how to treat people. And she meant people in general. So even though our focus is people with dementia, you know, there's a lot to be said for kindness and compassion. Dr. Jean, can you give us a couple of examples of those 10 ways to empower ourselves? And Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it, it's really all about, you know, helping that person find a purpose, right? Mm. And, and keeping that sense of the self alive. So for an example, in a leading memory care community um, here, uh, it's a national community uh, for people with memory impairments. You know, one of the things that they really work, uh, really make sure and instill is that, is that that resident, that person has a job. Mm. And that, uh, giving that person a job gives them that sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. Many times people may have behaviors that, that look as though they, they could be agitated, right? These behaviors can display in such a way that they may be disruptive, either at home or in a community setting. Mm -hmm. So it's trying to figure out what is the message behind those behaviors, right? What is happening there? What's the need? And once that need is identified, giving that person a job usually works to fulfill that need. And I'll give you an example, Denise, is a very dear patient of mine um, recently moved to, to the, the, uh, the memory care community that I'm referring to. And, the, and uh, he was uh, moving chairs around in the community. And uh, obviously quite, you know, potentially, you know, disruptive, right? Unless he's in a room by himself moving chairs. And it occurred to all of us, this is, why is he doing this? What is this about? Is that he needs a sense that he has a job to do. Hmm. 
So the staff at that community gave him a, a job to do every day where he works alongside with the maintenance uh, person and helps that person move items. And that fulfills that need. So once consistently done on a daily basis, that need is fulfilled. Those other behaviors that are more disruptive have, have definitely lessened and even will be going away. But that's a really good, good, you know, example. It's really, you know, having that person feel, you know, it's a universal need to feel understood, whether you have a brain disease or not. And it's figuring out ways to, you know, empower that person who's living at home with you or maybe having living in their own home with caregivers and making them feel that they're also giving back and that they're productive. So another good example is, um, you know, a patient of mine folds laundry every day. Now you can say, how much laundry can a couple have, right? Every day the laundry's done. So what the husband does is he, he gathers items, you know, the towels and sheets and things out of the linen closet every day and puts them in, a, in the basket. And every day she folds towels and linens and washcloths and all kinds of things like that. That makes her feel productive. Now, he doesn't do the laundry every day, right? That would be a waste of resources. But he, she is folding clothes. She is folding towels. And that makes her feel really good about that. Mm-hmm. Empowering that person also means, you know, having a schedule. You know, in the best memory care communities, they have, they have a schedule. They have a consistent, structured schedule. At home, you can also develop a schedule. And that provides really a sense of safety for that person and also makes them feel like they're up to something every day. And again, that empowers that person. Allison, you, um, you write a, um, a bit about your mother in the book. Yes. How did it, and you said you didn't want to write until after she passed away, but how did you feel about writing about her? Ah, uh, so partly because... I had Dr. Jane as my tutor, but also because my siblings and I had advantages that made it much easier to take care of my mother than it might have been. Uh, She had the resources to live in a memory care community, which she did for almost a decade. And I believe that she lived so long because she had no external stress in her life. Once we moved her from her home, it was as if the responsibilities that had become too much for her had just vanished. She never asked again. I think that her energy and her optimism increased on day two in the memory care community because as Jane just said, she had something to look forward to. She had a reason to get up in the morning put on her outfit and sail down the hall to the dining room. And at home, she had become a person who spent most of her morning napping, reading, watching TV, dozing, reading, repeating, et cetera. And so for her, it was a great move. If if my family hadn't had the advantages that we had, it's possible that I wouldn't have written the book with Jane because I would have just wanted to forget 
myself what had happened. But I think it was mostly a lovely time for my mother. As I said earlier, she did not wind up hating me. We've shared many, many moments of, of candor and joy um, and hilarity together during the years that she lived in the memory care community. And the idea that by writing this book, Jane and I could help a huge number of people who are trying to take care of people with dementia, but by extension, that means that we are helping the people with dementia because the more of us, the non-dementia people, if you will, who want to interact with people with dementia, then the less socially disappeared those people will be. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's true. Um, so most of the vignettes, which are, again, so interesting and engaging, at the end of most of them, you have some practical points. And how did you come up with those? Um, it really put it into such a, again, practical way of how to, you know, engage with someone with dementia. How did you come up with all those? You know, it, it's really, the, the practical points really are, just serve as reminders for all of us. They, they really are the salient points in that respective chapter. And they're things that you can look back on, you know, a quick read. Um, you can jump, or what's really great about this book is you can jump around from chapter to, you don't have to go in order. You can, you can start with chapter four and then, and then go to chapter three, for example. It doesn't have to be in order. But, but, the, but the, those points, those practical points really are really important. And we wanted to bring out the importance of each chapter in those points. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and you mentioned the word empowerment. A lot. A lot. <laughs> a lot today, a lot in the book. Um, empowering on both sides, right? the caregiver and the, and the person who has dementia. Um, yeah, talk with us about that. You know, uh, you know, empowerment really, it's, it's an ongoing approach. It, it's, it's, uh, it's empowerment of you, the carer, as well as empowerment of that person with, with a cognitive impairment. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it makes them feel useful. It makes them feel they're right. And it really decreases a lot of any potential behavioral and mood changes, you know, as the disease progresses, we see, unfortunately, you know, I see uh, behavioral changes or the person may become more depressed or they may become more agitated or aggressive and even strike out. So empowering that person makes them feel as though there's really, as we had said earlier, there's really nothing wrong with them. And if you can make them feel that way, then, you, you, you know, it really changes. It's a real game changer to the treatment. Um, you know, no one is signing up, for example, to move into to memory care communities. There, you know, people, people don't want to move from their home. They, they, want, they want consistency. They, want, they don't want to change. But for example, once that person does make that change, their sense and their uh, ideas of what home was does change because they're on a structured you know, consistent and engaging type schedule. You can also do that at home too. Not everybody can afford, you know, a memory care community. 
You can do that at home with, with, you know, again, going back to that, that very simple schedule that you, that a person, a carer can create. And that schedule really serves as, as a way to provide that safety for that person, that sense of security. It, it is, it is amazing to see the changes when a person is on a schedule. Do we have time for me to tell a super quick story about my mother? Yes, please. Yes. Okay. So this took place when my mother was still living in her own home and I was living there with her. And one morning she hadn't gotten up for breakfast and now it's getting towards lunch and I'm getting a little antsy because she's going to be dehydrated. She's going to have low blood sugar. She's going to be stiff. So I go in the kitchen, I make two very beautiful, if I say so myself, salads, and I stick my head in her bedroom and I say, hi, it's almost lunchtime, are you hungry? And she looks right at me and says, not really. And I think, okay. So I said, well, I am hungry and I've made us gorgeous salads, but I didn't put the dressing on. So we can just put saran wrap on yours and put it in the fridge for later but I'd like to eat now. Would you come and keep me company in the dining room? And she says, oh, darling, I'd be delighted to. So she gets up, she does her little toilette. She puts on a lovely robe. She comes down the hall into the kitchen. She sees the salads, says how beautiful they are. And then immediately says, do we have water glasses on the table? And I say, not yet. And she goes, okay, I'll get them. So she's completely forgotten about the not hungry stance. I have empowered her, if you will, to do something for me. She's going to keep me company. She's going to get us water. We have a totally lovely lunch. And after lunch, she says, thank you. It was so delicious. If you need to get back to work, why don't I do the dishes? So here we are. I didn't boss her and say she had to get up. I didn't offer to bring her lunch in bed. She got up and we had a lovely time because I found a way to, to empower her and to let her know that she's important to me. I wanted to spend time with her. Mm -hmm. Done. <laughs> how do you, um, maybe Dr. Jane, how do you handle people who are, are feeling guilty about possibly moving you know, their parent or their spouse even? To, from their home to a memory care unit. Absolutely. You know, that's very common, Denise. Mm -hmm. It's very common. And why do we feel so guilty? Is because we love them so much, right? Mm -hmm. And I think many of us have made promises to not move that person. Mm. But, but I think it's really kind of letting go of the steering wheel and that you really can't do it alone. That even with a caregiver at home, it becomes very difficult because there really are no activities at home, right? There's, no, there's, there's not an activity director in your home. So it's really getting beyond the guilt and understanding that this person needs treatment. And the treatment for somebody with a brain disease like Alzheimer's disease is a structured environment. Now, not everybody, as you know, can afford a structured environment. They must keep that person at home because of the financial piece usually is what drives those decisions, right? Mm -hmm. Or in their own home. So that's why, you know, 
building in structure at home will help. But that guilt is really a, a you have, you know, the guilt is a feeling and, but you have to get beyond that and see that this person really needs the, the treatment. And that treatment is, is, is a key to keeping that person, you know, slowing down the progression of the disease through activities, through music, through art, through exercise, through great nutrition, and most importantly, is through socialization. So when people are socializing, you know, something magical happens, right? Mm -hmm. And so even the person, you know, many times patients, you know, the families come to me and say, well, my mom would never attend an activity, uh, only to find to be pleasantly surprised that when they come to visit, they don't even want to leave the community because they're so busy and they're enjoying themselves. And bottom line is they're having fun in the moment. And so it doesn't really matter if they can't remember what they did yesterday or what they had for breakfast. What matters is that they're having fun and that they're, they're, they're becoming more alive in that moment. That's truly what it's about. And I think it would be probably exhausting for the caregiver, the family member to create these moments all the time. It is. It is exhausting. And, and you, you know, you have to have those resources. It is very difficult. And that's why many carers become, you know, they exhausted. Mm -hmm. It is exhausting or they become depressed or they become, you know, anxious. They have sleep problems because they're, they're worried about their loved one, whether it's a spouse or whether it's, you know, a parent and especially now during, you know, we're still in our, our COVID times, it becomes very difficult, mm-hmm. much more difficult. There is still, after all these years, a stigma about people with dementia and Alzheimer's and, and people, you know, forget that it's a, it's a real disease. Um, how do you, you know, how do you address that? That kind of thing. And when do you think the tipping point is going to be? You know, Denise, that's, that's really, it's hard to wrap your arms around that. Absolutely. Because as you know, not only in our country, but in other countries too, there's a great deal of stigma. In our country, with the Alzheimer's Associations nationally, that stigma continues. Mm-hmm. And many times it is a lack of information and education. But somehow they feel that this person may be acting like this on purpose. I mean, I've heard that too. Just as somebody would have a heart disease, this is a brain disease. And that stigma needs to be addressed. I mean, one of the reasons why I started, you know, in 2017, Alzheimer's Care Armenia, in Armenia is to address that stigma and to create those sustainable programs for people because Alzheimer's disease and other dementias is on the rise internationally. So that's what we have. By the way, by Armenia. What's close to your heart in Armenia? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, my background, I'm Armenian. And uh, my grandparents uh, were from, you know, Turkey, survived the Armenian, you know, the genocide that happened. And uh, so, I I, I mean, Armenia is very... uh, close to my heart. Um, uh, uh, We also, uh, I adopted, we adopted our son from Armenia. So when he was an infant, so 
I'm very much, uh, you know, very involved in uh, promoting and supporting uh, the work of, of really creating these programs in Armenia for, for the people that, you know, they have none. Uh, um, clearly, um, there, you know, I'm working on uh, developing the first Alzheimer's uh, facility there. I have to share that uh, this all got started in 2018 with uh, the support of the Silverado communities. I had approached uh, the CEO, Lauren Shook, at that time about supporting this endeavor, and, and we wanted to have a conference. So it was the Silverado community that supported the, the first Alzheimer's disease conference in Armenia. Okay. And then it just all became, you know, uh, it just became much more visible to people that the problem was in Armenia also, that mm-hmm. people are affected. And I think, oh, go ahead, Allison. I think that the increase in early onset Alzheimer's also will help dissipate a bit of the stigma because now it's people who look more like me, if you will, partly because of the bump in you know baby boomer population, but also it's on the rise, not just because there are more of us, but because mm-hmm. there is more early onset Alzheimer's. And mm-hmm. so there's increasingly um, interest and research as well, significant research as to what can you do to slow the onset to slow the progression um, and to continue to lead a more uh, productive in the traditional sense life. And so there's a lot more research going on about diet and exercise and also socialization, meditation and so on. And so I think that as more people who look like me, um, all of us. Perfect. Thank <laughs> you. I, didn't want to say I, that. I believe I'm the eldest statesman here on the program. But I think that as more people who are like us, who aren't necessarily retired, develop major memory problems, then there's going to be more, not only awareness, but more interest and more energy put into how do we help those people, ourselves, to, to lead healthy, productive lives for longer. So I have um, two friends that were diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's when they were 69. And so I hear about this, there's a rise in it. It's not just because we have more testing. And all. So what, why is it? Why is scary to think that there's a, it's on the rise? Well, I am not at all an expert, but I'm going <laughs> to offer just a one sentence theory and then turn it over to Jane who isn't okay. I think I think that a fair amount of it has to do with lifestyle with with the stress in our lives um done mm-hmm. absolutely you know uh in our foreword by Dr. William Shankle you know the, of the Shankle clinic you know you know it's it's his work it you know takes into effect uh, it's multi faceted right so it's not it's also about nutrition it's also about managing stress and so it's the whole person and i think you know we're still learning about why is this occurring in younger people why is it occurring in in more women than men at an earlier age in their 40s even 50s is i'm seeing that in my practice 
So I, it is, you know, I, I think uh, lifestyle. I think it's also the amount of stress that we're under, the lack of exercise um, and nutrition drives that too. Um, you, you know, so it, it is, it is a, it, it's really a whole person. You have to look at that whole person. And, and also too, is, you know, let's not forget, you know, people years ago were not living very long, right? I mean, our longevity now, we're, you know, we're young at 90, right? We're, we're old when we're 90. Midlife is what now? 65, 70 is midlife. So people are living longer than any other time before in society. And we're, we're seeing this now, which, which affects, you know, and I think on bottom line, I think a lot of it is stress. Mm-hmm. And with this it's, pandemic, oh, mm-hmm. sorry, Allison, why don't you go ahead? I was mm-hmm. just going to say, if you think about why people who have the means mm-hmm. go to spas, mm-hmm. it's to wind down. You get away from your devices. You have delicious food prepared for you. You are physically active. You meet new people. All of those things that we associate with this great indulgence, in fact, you can bring those things into your normal life. You don't have to go to a spa or fantasize about a spa. And I think that increasingly research is looking at those things and saying, you need to, you need to wind down, dial it back, let your brain rest. Mm. And I think that's also why there's an increase in all kinds of well-being things. Um, but you, ha- you have to, it's not as easy as a pill. You know, it's, it's a lifestyle choice. And I think that many people have a hard time with that idea of, oh, I'm responsible. I can make these changes and maybe those will help me in a big way. I heard that there's an app for your phone where it can alert you if you're on the phone too, too much, right? If you're on your device too much so that, you know, because sometimes we just get attached or addicted well, to it. I remember in 1995 being on a plane for the first time with somebody with a laptop. I didn't even have a computer yet. Mm. We were both on our way back from a conference and she was like, processing all of her receipts on her laptop Hmm. and I was just completely incredulous because I always thought of flying as the ultimate downtime you have a book they bring you a beverage you just hang out and then the next thing I knew there were people who could talk on their phones and all kinds of stuff in the air and somebody that year told me about the term data smog the idea that there's too much data out there uh-huh. that our brains can't keep up with the new volume and speed of computing power. And so we feel like we have to try and that cannot, that cannot be good for us. Sure. Sure. Um, so Dr. Jane, this is uh, the pandemic time and people are um, going through some depression and how does depression and dementia it must uh, just complicate the whole issue. And, you know, people don't dare to move their family member to a facility, and so they're at home. And what advice would you give them? You know, absolutely. You know, many times uh, it's very important for the neurologist to tease out how much of this is, is uh, 
the cognitive impairment is due to a depression. And when that depression lifts, we may see, and we do see, sometimes that person improves in their cognitive functioning. So the person that's at home in bed, refuses to get out of bed, Mm -hmm. is doing very little during the day, is obviously ultimately going to become depressed. Mm -hmm. And so that depression increases that progression of that brain disease. So you have to figure out ways to get that person engaged and busy and on a schedule. Um, It's very important to seek the expertise of a neurologist, Mm -hmm. as well as many times I provide a lot of counseling support, not just for the family, but also for that person. That transitional counseling or the supportive counseling or cognitive behavioral counseling to help that person with mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease or other dementias really get them out of that depression because the depression has to be treated. It's not something that we can ignore and it will snowball. It will increase and the person then will begin to shut down. And when that person begins to shut down, it, it, you know, it's very hard to bring that person back. It's possible and I have seen that, I have seen that in my work to bring the person back, but it, it takes, the, you know, it takes expertise to do that, but it is possible, but you want to avoid going down that road, right? You want to be able to, to nip it and nip it when, it, when it starts, when you start observing that your loved one is showing these signs of depression. They don't want to do anything. They don't want to get out of bed or they don't want to shower, Right. They, they think they already have, or they don't feel like getting up, you know, and doing that or taking a shower, cleaning up. Um, they don't feel like doing a puzzle. They don't want to go for a walk. So you have to figure out ways to get them to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That actually is our very first chapter. The mm-hmm. title, which I think might be my favorite chapter title, is clarifying three of the four D words, dementia, depression, and diagnosis. The fourth D word, in case you're curious, is denial. And we talk about that in a later chapter. But the, the overlap, if you will, between dementia and depression, that one can mimic the other, that's one of the many benefits of actually having a neurologist um, examine someone who's having memory challenges, just to figure out what is what is going on because the sooner you know the better off you are and the better off that person will be yeah and the family Mm -hmm. members I think sometimes they get trapped and think they have to figure it out but they they're not capable of figuring out Mm -hmm. what is needed to be done so we have to wrap up our talk today and um, maybe uh, your final thoughts of you know what is your message that you would like to give people um, for, you know, from this book? I'll go first. If I had just one, mm-hmm. it would be to realize that you cannot do this by yourself, mm. that you shouldn't be embarrassed, that you should not feel guilty, that you should not be in denial, that you should reach out not only to people who are involved in this kind of care as, as part of their jobs, as part of their expertise, but also to other people so that you don't shrink the world of the person you're trying to take care of. 
And if you don't have primary responsibility for somebody, but you have casual friends or colleagues who are experiencing um, memory loss, don't, don't abandon them because you're afraid of what to say. Hmm. I mean, well stated, you know, it, it's, it's really all about, you know, not giving up hope. Mm. and that you can't do it alone, as Allison was saying. You know, this is something that you cannot do by yourself. I cannot emphasize that more. It's something that, you, you, you know, it, you have to ask for help. And you start with a neurologist. You, you uh, begin with your primary care doctor and a, and a, and a neurologist. And, um, you know, you have to do your research and have that support such as support groups or support forums and education and classes. So reach out and, um, you know, there, you know, many, many people are affected uh, throughout our country. And so you're not alone. So many. Well, if our, our viewers would like to connect with you, what's a good way, what's the best way to connect with you, Allison? For me, it is via email. And that is Allison, A-L-Y-S-O-N, at concierge, so like a concierge, but with my last name, K-U-H-N-C-I-E-R-G-E dot com. Perfect. And Dr. Jane? Uh, the, the best way is just to go to the website. And the website is agingmattersinc.com. So agingmattersinc.com. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So our, our thanks to Dr. Jane Mahakian and Allison Kuhn, and especially for your book, I Hear You. Um, and thank you all of you who tuned in today. And that concludes our program at the Commonwealth Club of California. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.